0: Does anyone know what Bloomington, Minnesota is famous for? It's not a hockey team. It's not a lake. It's not a Minnesota accent. Minnesota. Uh, It's a shopping mall. Yes, the Mall of America. In terms of total floor area, the Mall of America is the largest shopping mall in the United States. Now if you think Baskin-Robbins 31 flavor options is bewildering, the Mall of America has over 500 stores. And if you have if you're looking for anything you will most likely find it here. But you'll most likely need the navigational skills of Magellan to find it. The Mall of America has 12,287 parking spaces. But it's so much more than a shopping mall. And no, I don't think that's its slogan. It has movie theaters, an amusement park with like actual full-size roller coasters, a mini golf course, an aquarium, and they're even proposing to add an indoor water park. Needless to say, I don't think the Mall of America is as concerned with online shopping as much as other brick-and-mortar retail venues. The Mall of America is a holy site for American capitalism. (laughs) It is the ultimate marketplace. In many ways, it's similar to what the landscape of religion, particularly Christianity, in America has become. A marketplace. There are options upon options upon options and people get to sort through those options to see which one best satisfies their personal preferences. Stores to guarantee a stable stream of customers will seek to uh, capture the corner on the market for a certain niche. So if you think you go into a mall Think of a store like Lids. I don't know if you're familiar. Lids is the hat store. If you're interested in hats, you go to Lids. Lids have pretty much figured out how to get all the people who like hats to come to their store and nowhere else. In a mega mall landscape of churches, churches get to specialize to appeal to certain corners of the market, even if they do this subconsciously. This is because when you're shopping in a mall with over 500 stores, customers can afford to be picky. The same goes for shopping or scoping the church landscape in America. Christians find their way to what is biggest, to what is best. And then every week turns into an evaluation of the church's performance. How exciting was the preaching? How good was the music? How many programs do they have? What are their youth ministry like? it's ironic because people get so caught up in evaluating the performance of something like preaching that they don't let the preaching of the word evaluate them. And as soon as performance goes down, people leave to go to another church where they receive all the benefits without any commitment. Now, we have to be really careful here, and I am included in that. We can focus on and bemoan the marketplace mentality of American Christianity so much that we turn into self-righteous curmudgeons. We're right, they're wrong, we're just going to do it our way not care about them at all. We can turn into that and wind up never praying for or rejoicing in the ministry of the gospel at other local churches. We must not do that. With that said, in light of the landscape that we're in, in light of this marketplace, it's all the more important to know what a biblical, healthy church is. How many of us have spent most of our lives going to a church and we can't come up with a definition of what a biblical local church is supposed to be? Now, it's important to know, especially in light of our environment and this marketplace, that church vitality and church success is not best defined by how well a church meets the demands and needs of its customers or its members. Certainly, churches should be sensitive to the spiritual needs and even the preferences of their people. But this can't be the central criteria for our methods. The most successful churches in the marketplace may draw in big crowds, may have many consumers But what did they win them with? What did they win them with? Did they win them with an experience? An atmosphere? A coffee shop? Did they win them with relevance? Did they win them with a concert? It's been said many times. What you win them with is what you win them to. So in those cases, you may not have won them to a gospel church, but to a social club with a bunch of people just like them. Now this attitude toward the church in this landscape, it treats the church as another option on the spiritual buffet. The thought becomes that with our personal relationship with Christ, I can fill my plate with a lot of different options. Church being one of them. So I can fill my plate with something like Bible reading and Bible studies, support groups, sermons on TV or sermons online, and much, much more. So to go away from the Mall of America, then uh, the landscape becomes like Golden Corral. A lot of different options. And if I feel like putting church on my plate, I can. But it's not necessary. There are a lot of other good things. Well, friends, church is more than another option. Church is more than something to consume. The church is important because it's important to Christ. Jesus calls it his church that he will build. When speaking to the elders of the church in the city of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul stresses the preciousness of the church by reminding them That Christ purchased the church with his own blood. And throughout the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But, yeah, those people are probably right. The church is probably just inconsequential. Not something we should cherish, not something we should think through. Of course, that's sarcastic. There is a mountain of evidence that says otherwise, that says the church is vitally important. And considering the importance of the church, we should think through how the Bible defines a local church. And that's what we're seeking to do today. And I pray that it will challenge some of our understanding, some of our tendencies, some of our attitudes, and that it will honor the church's founder and Lord, Jesus Christ. So take a Bible, and whereas we normally spend time focusing on one particular passage, we're going to be in several different passages today. And I'll do my best to tell you when it will be most helpful for you to turn to a particular passage. I even looked up the page numbers in advance, so don't worry. Um, And just kind of as a side note going into this, a lot of this is not original to me. I've been helped uh, by teachers, I've been helped by uh, ministries, uh, such as Nine Marks, I've been helped by men such as Mark Dever, Jonathan Lehman, Greg Gilbert, Greg Allison, uh, um, Bobby Jameson, those men have helped me shape really the rest of this study. So if you'd like to read more in depth, i got a bunch of books, and I'm totally willing to let you borrow them, so... Come, if you want to know more about this, ask me about that. Today's time uh, will have a lot of information, and I don't want to be choppy and robotic, uh, but I do want you to be able to follow along with what I'm presenting. So, um, the lay of the land ahead, okay? The main goal is to define what a local church is, and before we do that, We'll briefly see how we get to the church in the story of the Bible. Then we'll give a basic definition of what a local church is. We'll see what's not in that definition, and we'll see what is in that definition. Okay, Basic lay of the land ahead. So some preliminary matters. How do we get to the church in that whole story? And I'm not talking about directions. I'm talking about a story, maybe more precisely a plan. From the beginning, God's plan was to display his glory not in individuals, but in a corporate body. You can just look at Genesis, Genesis 1. God does not create one person. He creates two people who had the ability to produce more. Then you go to the flood in Genesis. God saved not just Noah, but several families connected to Noah. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, a pagan, to make a new people. God doesn't just glorify himself through Abram, an individual. He says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is God's plan. And you go even into Exodus. God deals not just with Moses, but with the entire nation of Israel. So one author writes that God has consistently had a plan to glorify his name through groups of people he chose and took as his own. So when you're talking about the story of the church, that story begins with God's pattern seen in Israel. And then the word translated church, ecclesia. that word occurs 114 times in the New Testament. It carries the sense of an assembly or a congregation of people. And as we said earlier, Jesus founded his assembly. Jesus founded his own ecclesia, his own church. We see this in Matthew 16. From there, Bible authors use that word, ecclesia, to describe both a local congregation and all Christians everywhere. The majority of the time, though, it's the former. Ecclesia is used to describe local congregations, concrete assemblies of those who have been baptized and who meet at a specific place. And even at the beginning of Revelation, Jesus addresses local churches. So let's work towards a basic definition. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, you'll find it on page 823. 823, verse 20. And you read this verse. It's short when you find it. And uh, you can recite this verse to the next Bible study you have at your home. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, Matthew 18, verse 20. Page 823. It reads this. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them Christians have used this verse in a variety of ways some well meaning seeking to find comfort but not in the way that it's intended the context of this verse where this verse is situated as many of you know is the process that Jesus gives of how to deal with a christian who is sinning that's often called church discipline. More on that later. You'll see that the last step in this process Jesus gives is to take the person to the church. Verse 17. Now, who is the church exactly? Well, verse 20. It's a group that is gathered in Christ's name. And think about what it takes for that to happen, for a group to gather in Christ's name. They first have to believe the gospel of Christ, and that comes from hearing about Christ. And then they need to agree that they believe in the same thing, that they agree on the what of the gospel. Then they need to affirm that each of them believes the gospel. They need to affirm the who of the gospel, the gospel confession and the gospel confessor. And all that process requires structures to facilitate that. So you see the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper, signs of entrance, that we have affirmed your profession of faith and that we continually affirm your profession of faith through the Lord's Supper. It's how the church is distinguished from the world and is contained, is preserved. So you work from this text and you work from others that describe the visible signs of the church, the ordinances that describe who belongs to the church, the functions of the church. We can discern a definition of a local church. And I'm borrowing here from Jonathan Lehman. You'll see it printed in your bulletin. The definition of a local church. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, it's a little clunky. There's a lot there. And we're going to break down each, parts, each part of that definition. But for a second, notice what's not there. And we'll run through this briefly. Some distinctions to keep in mind. Notice in this definition that a church is not the church. That means the universal church, or also known as the Catholic church, small c, Catholic. That is, all Christians everywhere throughout history, the universal church and the local church, specific gatherings of Christians, there's a distinction between those things. You read this definition... You also notice that a church is not the kingdom of God. There's a distinction between the rule of God, the rule of God that's here and that will one day fully arrive when Christ returns. There's a distinction between the church, a local church, and the rule of God. Now God has reestablished his rule in the person of his son, Jesus Christ through Jesus' life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection. And God's re-established rule is now visible. It's visible in the church. Those who have entered that kingdom via their faith response to the king. So think of churches then, not as the kingdom, but as outposts or embassies of the kingdom. You read this definition and notice that a church is not a building. You flip to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find verse 25. You'll find that on page 979 if you're looking at the Pew Bible, 979. Ephesians chapter 5, something I want you to see uh, and even important for married couples, believe it or not. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Noticing that the church is not a building. This verse comes in the middle of Paul's instructions to married couples. And it says this. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave himself up, not for a place, but for a people. While it's common in our language to associate the church building with the church itself, the church is more precisely a group of people. That's why I usually open up our time together with the words, Welcome to this gathering of Old Oak Bible Church. Most fundamentally, Old Oak Bible Church is a people who gather. If you read this definition of a local church, you'll see that a local church is not a statistic. It's not a statistic. If a church is composed of people, of individuals, then they should be viewed as people, as people purchased by the blood of Christ. They should not be viewed as numbers. When we view individuals as statistics and overvalue numbers, we begin to love the church we want instead of loving the church we have. We miss out on the people right in front of us. Read this definition, you'll see a church is not a spiritual center. Church is not a spiritual center. Its purpose is not for people to get their fill of motivational speaking. As we said in the introduction, church is not another option on the buffet line. We'll see that while churches are meant to encourage Christians to grow in their walk with the Lord, they exist more for people to consume. They exist first for its people to provide for one another. Finally, you read this definition of a local church. And you'll notice that a church is not a nonprofit charity. A church is not a nonprofit charity. A church's highest purpose is not community service. Although churches can certainly be used by God to help the physical needs of its communities, yes. But its highest purpose is to proclaim Christ and seek to alleviate not just temporal, physical suffering, but to alleviate eternal suffering. It's trendy now for churches to emphasize that church is not just about what happens inside the four walls of the building. And I really appreciate the heart behind that sentiment. I really do. But a group that only exists for community service, friends, that's not a church. So we've noticed some things about a biblical definition of a local church that we might expect to be included, but aren't included. But what is actually in the definition? Let's read it one more time. Again, it's in your bulletin. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. We can break this down into five different parts also printed in your bulletin. Number one, a group of Christians. Number two, a regular gathering. Three, affirmation and oversight. Four, representing Christ and gathering in his name. And five, the use of preaching and ordinances for these purposes. rest of our time just going to cover each one of these parts in turn. Okay, number one. A group of Christians. Now, what do you need to know to know what this means? A group of Christians. Now, the group part is pretty simple, pretty self-explanatory. Group, multiple people. But a group of what? A group of Christians. So what do you need to know to know what this means is what a Christian is? And friend, can you answer that? Can you answer what a Christian is? Well, maybe you say it's someone who believes in Jesus. I would say, yes, you're certainly right. That's absolutely a part of it. But can you fill that out with any more detail? Why do Christians believe in Jesus? What does that make true of people then? Let's turn to a passage of Scripture that really summarizes this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll find that on page 966. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here we find a good summary of what a Christian is and what is true of a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5. And we'll begin in verse 17. so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what is a Christian? You look at that passage. A Christian is a new creation. And how are they made a new creation? Is it because of themselves? No, it's from God. Verse 18. Christians are new creations because God has reconciled them to himself. And that's the key word, reconcile. It literally means to exchange hostility for a friendly relationship. Hostility for a friendly relationship. And how, does God, how is God able to do that? And why were we previously in a hostile relationship with God? Well, look at verse 19. It's because of our trespasses, our sin, our way of life independent of the Lord. And so how does God exchange that kind of hostile relationship for a friendly one? How does he do that? It's because of Christ. You Look at verse 21. Christ willingly took on our sin, the punishment for it, so that we may be forgiven, And then Christ gives us his righteousness so that we can be justified, accepted in God's sight. So, you talk about an exchange. Because of Christ, we exchange death for life, we exchange hostility for acceptance in a friendly relationship. That's what's true of a Christian. But when does this exchange take place? Well, reconciliation to God happens when a person repents or turns from her sin and puts her faith in the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So then a Christian, a Christian is someone who has reached the end of his rope And no longer depends on themselves, their own morality, their own achievements before God. They claim to God, God, if you looked at me on my own, I deserve your judgment. But then they look to Christ, and they depend only on him. That makes us new creatures. That gives us freedom from the power and guilt of sin. And it gives us new desires to no longer follow sin, but to follow Christ. (laughs) Friends, that's the beginning of what it means to be a Christian. And I have to ask you, are you a Christian? Are you confident that this describes you? You'll notice in small print, on the second page of your bulletin every week is the invitation that if you'd like to know more about what this means to see me or one of the elders. Friends, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait. You don't have to clean yourself up first. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. So a local church is a group of these kind of people. Christians. But being a Christian means more than being reconciled to God. Yeah, believe it or not. We are not just reconciled to God, but also to God's people. We see this in Ephesians 2. You can turn there if you like. It's on page 977. In Ephesians 2, after the Apostle Paul describes the great salvation that God has given us in Christ, he turns to describe what this now means for the relationship between Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, who believe in the same Lord but are very different from one another. And so this relationship between Jews and Gentiles, by extension, applies to all Christians, how they relate to one another. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And the chapter goes on. It says we are all fellow citizens. We are all members of God's household. We are all joined together with Christ in one holy temple, reconciled to God and to each other. So think of it like adoption. If you are an orphan, you don't adopt parents. Parents adopt you. They give you their name. And when you become their child, They become your parents, and you become the siblings of their children. You get both, new parents and new siblings. Mark Dever writes, This is why it's impossible to answer the question of what is a Christian without ending up in a conversation about the church. At least in the Bible it is. Because Christians are those who are reconciled not just to God, but to God's people. And this reality displays itself in local churches. In fact, the New Testament doesn't know a category of a Christian who is not involved in a local church. That's just number one. The rest will be faster, I promise. Number two, a regular gathering. What makes a group of Christians a church? What makes a group of Christians a church? More than the Bible study that meets in the park. What makes a group of Christians a church? Well, they have to commit... To being together. And it's tough to say that you are reconciled to someone if you are never with that person. It's the evidence of it. Think of it, it's similar to being reconciled to God through Christ. You are given the righteousness of Christ. But from what is the proof of that? What is the evidence of that? It is that now we actively seek righteousness in our own lives. That's the proof that it's happened. So, committing to our new brothers and sisters in a local church is how we demonstrate. It is how we prove that God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. So, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, an important passage for this subject. You'll find this on page 1007. Hebrews 10. I'm going to find verse 23. How does God enable us to hold fast the confession? It's through stirring up one another to love and good works. And how do we stir up one another to love and good works? We meet together. That's the logic of this passage. This is how we display we've been reconciled to God and one another. We don't display that primarily by memorizing Bible verses. We don't display it primarily by now listening to Christian radio. We don't display it primarily by praying before dinner. No, we display that we've been reconciled to one another, as one author puts it, by increasingly showing a willingness to put up with, to forgive, and even to love a bunch of fellow sinners. Is that true of you? That's who churches are full of. Reconciled sinners. Christian, love your new brothers and sisters by committing to a concrete group of them, even with all their faults. Like a family, persevere with them. Don't discard them at a drop of a hat. You wouldn't do that with your family. So a church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together And we want to ask ourselves if we have committed to do this. I don't want to browbeat here. I pray that we can all cultivate the desire to display the reality Christ has won for us. That we are reconciled to God and to each other. So how do Christians who regularly gather act toward one another? What are their responsibilities and duties to each other? This gets at the third part of the definition Christians in local church officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Christ. Christians are those, Colossians 1.13, who have been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. As we discussed in Matthew 18, in order for Christians to agree to meet together, in order for Christians to be a part of the same church, they have to affirm something about one another. They must affirm that they are truly a part of the church, that they indeed have been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son via their faith in him. And Jesus calls this affirmation, exercising the keys of the kingdom more on that in a couple in the coming weeks and as christians in local churches live together they provide oversight to one another so that they can help one another continue to follow christ and they continue to affirm one another's profession of faith in the case that a church can no longer affirm someone's profession of faith because of clear, unrepentant sin, that's when a church begins to remove that affirmation. That's the process called church discipline. And again, more on that soon. But how do Christians help one another? How do Christians provide oversight for one another? For the New Testament, if you read it closely, it is replete with instructions of how to do this. And the catch-all command is to love one another. And from this flows the commands to seek unity and peace with one another, to care for one another's physical and spiritual needs, to hold one another accountable, to teach one another, to be patient with one another, to pray for one another, to be examples for one another. It keeps going. You know what a good Bible study is? To find all those one another's. So, brothers and sisters especially fellow elders. How will we answer to God when he calls us to account of how we loved and served his church? Let's examine ourselves. Jesus paid it all. Now all to him we owe. Examine our hearts, our patterns, our approach to when we gather together. Can we increase our love and care for one another? Can we go out of our way to do something we normally don't do for someone? Friends, this, this is the very body of Christ. In Acts 9, Jesus confronts a terrorist of his church. And he goes to Saul and he says, not, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these people? Jesus doesn't say that. He says, why are you persecuting me? That is how closely our Lord identifies with his church. And brothers and sisters, is Jesus' church that precious to you. For what purpose does a group of Christians regularly gather to affirm and oversee each other's membership in Christ? It's number four, fourth part of our definition. It's for the purpose of officially representing Christ and gathering in his name. How do we do this? How do we represent Christ? How do we live out this purpose We do it in three ways. Worshiping, growing, evangelizing. Informed and instructed by the Bible, we worship God together. We do that when we gather by worshiping in the ways God has instructed us in his word. Left to ourselves, we do not know how to worship God as we should. So God instructs those of whom he has redeemed how they are to worship him. Simply, we do this by reading the Bible, by preaching the Bible, by praying the Bible, by singing the Bible, by seeing the Bible in his ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But worship, worship exists more than our, just in our public gatherings. It exists in our individual lives. The Bible tells us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God so that in everything we do, we do to the glory of God. But more than worship, we represent Christ and gather in his name by growing in our individual walk with the Lord. This happens as the spirit moves in our hearts through the preaching of the word. It happens as we spur one another on to love and good works, as we saw in Hebrews 10. And we also grow in our corporate walk with Christ. So this community, this church, should reflect, should aim to reflect God's character. We are to be holy as God is holy. We are to love as God is love. We fulfill that purpose of representing Christ by representing him to the world, by bringing his word to those outside of his church. Jesus is parting words to his disciples. I'm in Matthew chapter 28. You could turn there if you like. It's on page 835. His parting words to his disciples He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the mission. This is the mission Jesus has given his church. We do this where we scatter throughout the week, but we also find ways to make God's name great, not just in our community, but to the ends of the earth. That's why we pray for missions. That's why we pray for missionaries. We do this as we are able through financial support. We do this by sending out missionaries. We do this by raising up missionaries. So God, we serve the purpose of representing Christ and gathering in his name by worshiping, by growing, by evangelizing. Last one, number five the use of preaching and ordinances for this purpose. We've discussed how Christians and local churches must affirm one another's profession of faith so that they can be a part of a local church. Well, for an affirmation of a Christian to be possible, there have to be Christians in the first place. And for there to be Christians in the first place, they must have heard about Jesus. Think about it. You, all of us here, someone told you about that's the exact logic of Romans chapter 10 beginning in verse 13 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved how then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching That's the pattern God reveals in Scripture, that he creates his people by the revelation of himself. His spirit accompanies his word and brings new life. That's what happens at the first creation, Genesis 1. And that's how he does it in his new creation with us in Christ. So local churches preach God's word so that the spirit can continually bring new life and make his people more and more like God. And the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible portraits of the gospel. They're visible portraits of our obedience to Christ. They portray Christ's death and resurrection. They portray our testimony that we are spiritually reborn. And they portray our hope of the final resurrection of being reunited with the Lord the ordinances, our messages to the outside world that we are with Jesus. They remind us that we are affirmed that we indeed have been reconciled to God and to one another. How are you doing? It's a lot to take in, I know. Can we read that definition of a local church one more time. We've looked at all the parts trying to see how they all fit together. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Friends, God is on a mission. God is on a mission to glorify himself. Indeed, whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. We read a passage earlier from Ephesians chapter 3. And beginning in verse 10, it says this. Through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. How is God's wisdom and glory made known in this present age? It's the first three words that I read. Through the church. Through the blood of people of Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't think that this is not important. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding. We ask that you would help us to process what you have given to us in your word. We ask that we would think carefully and think deeply about this important subject, about what a local church is. God, in asking for your help, we also say thank you. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself. It did not come at a cheap price. It came at the costliest price imaginable. The blood of the Son of God. Jesus, thank you. And help us display the reality that we are reconciled to God and to each other. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.